From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And we welcome you to Open Line Friday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Uh, Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price. Uh, blessed to be with America's favorite theologian, Colin Donovan. How are you, sir? Uh, doing pretty good. Hey, good to be back after the holidays and some uh, interruptions of different kinds. These things happen. They do. Uh, but uh, wow. Let me uh, g- give you the phone numbers out here because calls are already pouring in. And that number is 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Colin Donovan, 833-288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial number 1 and then 205-271-2985. You could also uh, shoot us an email if you prefer that. The address openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put uh, Colin in the subject line or theology or Friday, something to differentiate uh, that so we make sure we get the right email to the right host. A lot of things going on. It, it seems like an awfully busy time for a January. Uh, we're, we're coming off the uh, very sad but understandable passing mm-hmm. of uh, Pope Benedict and then um, the beloved Cardinal Pell. My goodness. And now here we are coming up on the March for Life. So it's a kind of a busier time than what I remember. Yeah, it is. And I think one thing we can count on is that we have a couple of powerful intercessors uh, praying for the church, praying yes. for uh, for the for truth and life to prevail in this world. And so uh, we can we can count on them uh, to do that. But yeah, you're right. It uh, it seems to have been a, a devastating year so far, beginning with the uh, eve of, of uh, Holy Mother of God when uh, Pope Benedict uh, passed away. Mm. Um, but you know, there's so much to be grateful for in his life. Uh, a number of commentators had men- mentioned this, and um, I see this in a particular way because having you know, been in Rome in the 80s and into the 90s studying, mm-hmm. and he was the prefect at the time. And I was there because of my great love of John Paul II and his writings, and I wrote my uh, license to Cena on on the subject of his writings. You know, and it's, I think it's so interesting that in God's providence, we had, of course, the Second Vatican Council with uh, with all that transpired there, mm-hmm. uh, and there's uh, there's some great comments in that respect on CNA today in an interview with I think it was CNA, it might have been another uh, another channel um, with with Cardinal or Archbishop Chaput regarding this, and we have this we had the council, we have these interpretations that go back and forth, which is something which is fairly typical in any council, whether mm-hmm. it was Vatican I or the Council of Trent or, or earlier councils. The, the the debate is to the meaning. We we have the text and all of that, but the debate continu- regarding the meaning continues. Sure. And so God gave us, after uh, uh, John 23rd and Paul VI, who was uh, himself as Pope uh, and father of the council, 
He gave us John Paul II, who was the only bishop who actually wrote a book on the council called Sources of Renewal, hmm. uh, which he then gave to the priests of the uh, Archdiocese of Krakow. And uh, in order to guide their own application of the Second Vatican Council. And he gave us 26 years of his pontificate, which was a very, a couple points about it. It was certainly a very orthodox uh, priest and bishop, Mm -hmm. but he also came at it from his own writing, philosophical writings, the personalist view which is certainly something which the council represented as well. And so we had a 26-year insight by a man who was the father of the council, then became pope, whose writings were specifically in that wheelhouse, you might say, in trying to, how how do we remain orthodox and still understand the modern world and reach the modern world? And he very much... Uh, contemplated those kinds of issues. And then, of course, he brings in uh, Joseph Ratzinger out of out of Munich uh-huh. to be his prefect of the CDF. And we know how at the end of John Paul's own life, how Ratzinger succeeded him as pope. And it was like we had a continuation for another eight years of that pontificate. So we had over 30, was that add up to 34 years yeah. uh, about of of this authentic interpretation of the council, its meaning and application. And so what a solid basis for going forward. And I think between these two men, it's certainly been said of John Paul II that we'll spend the next century trying to understand more deeply uh, all the things that he wrote, both as Pope and also in his philosophical writings. Uh And I think that's certainly true of Pope Benedict as well. Uh, In his personal writings, as well as his magisterial writings, uh, that we will spend a good deal of time trying to see the the depth that, that is present in there and to see how this continuity, which both of them represented of the church through history, coming out of the tradition with the council and applying that authentically, how that can be done going into the future. And I think that's certainly the, the need today. Uh, and these two men have you know, set us on that path. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking uh, of something that I heard someone say some years ago, and it was that in their opinion, it takes about 40 years after a council for the dust to actually settle. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, and I I think that's probably uh, an optimistic viewpoint. (laughs) Um, You know, Whoever said that wasn't living in the modern age of communication. Yeah. You know, when the fiery darts of controversy can be thrown across the globe in a millisecond. Sure. Uh, So we're dealing with a a bit of a different environment today. Uh, On the one hand, it's a very open environment. And of course, as Americans, we always the slugfest of politics and everything. Mm -hmm. You know, that's very definitely our characteristic, not so much the Europeans. So I, I think maybe Americans can deal with this a little bit better. Uh, but we understand that, you know, it's in that cauldron of ideas, that crucible of ideas that things will be worked out. I think it's going to take another 20 or 30 years to do that, uh, probably another uh, couple pontificates or more, uh, because we're going to get different styles of, of governance. Uh, certainly Pope Francis has brought a different style, as as Papa Ratzinger noted when after his resignation, he said, well, 
you know, with regard to the new guy, it's a breath of fresh air. In other words, it's a different style. It's a different approach than we got used to. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, popes come and go and there will be a one after this one and then after that. And uh, eventually it'll get all settled out. And I think we're probably a, uh, a few decades from that. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. We're getting uh, calls coming in right now. If you would like to uh, get on the uh, get on the program today with your question for Colin, the phone number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. A uh, question here that we received uh, from Al in Minnesota. Thanks for your show. I learn a lot. My question is, what is the difference between an extraordinary minister providing a blessing and me wishing a blessing to a person that sneezes near me? Or Jack Williams saying, God bless, at the end of your show. I'm not trying to be argumentative, but I just Mm -hmm. want to understand. Sure. Yeah. Obviously, in the human, you know, human affairs, we, you know, we say, the the Germans say Gesundheit, you know, basically health. Yeah. Uh, We wish people that blessing. That's a prayer for them, and that's and that's how it should be taken. Sure, an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, um, frankly, should not be attempting to bless. And there's a couple good reasons for that. One is he's an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. He's not an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion and blessing of the people. Yeah, those who can bless are bishops priests and deacons according to the law and the ritual books which define the circumstances in which a deacon can bless. So those are the individuals who can bless, that have the faculty to represent the church and therefore God in blessing Mm -hmm. uh, in the circumstances which the church foresees and, and, and gives that faculty. Extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion have a very narrow brief, as the Brits would say. Uh Their brief is to distribute Holy Communion to the communicants as they come forward. They have no power of representing the church. Now, this was was reinforced uh, indirectly, because I don't believe it uh, spoke directly on this point, Back in the 90s, with a document put out by nine dicasteries collectively together uh-huh. on the relationship of the non-ordained to the ordained minister, we had developing of the, you know, pastoral workers doing different things in the church and even filling in in parishes that were priestless and so on. Just exactly what are the limits of that? Okay. And it also dealt with some other questions: is what is say, for example, in charismatic masses, what would be legitimate? And one thing that came out of it was that... Colin, hold that thought. I'm going to jump in here as we're taking a a quick break. We'll continue this on the other side with Open Line Friday and Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America... Call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, glad you're with us for Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Give you that phone number one more time, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Colin, 833-288-3986. So before the break... 
mm-hmm. we were we were talking uh, about uh, this whole idea of the extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion providing a blessing. And these days, right. yeah. the uh, kids would say, "Hey, stay in your lane, dude," because that's not really <laughs> something that a, an extraordinary minister should be attempting. Correct. Correct, yes, because they're there to distribute Holy Communion, and that's the faculty they have, the disputation from the bishop through the pastor. Each uh, EMHC is deputed uh, by the the bishop. Mm -hmm. Uh, Usually, you know, the pastor, I guess, gives them uh, the names of individuals and Uh uh, gives him, and, and he deputes them for that role. So they would not be wouldn't have any faculty to to bless. And there's uh, other arguments against it other than simply a legal argument. There's the theological argument. Uh, and that is within the uh, within the mass you have certain ministers in certain roles. The priest does, you know, or the bishop if he's the main celebrant and the deacons, they have different roles. The people uh, we have a particular role that we follow. And so those lines should be quite clear. And that is why we just uh, this week there was a note about uh, uh, in Switzerland, uh, the bishops there had to reinforce with some of their clergy that women should not be standing uh, around the altar during the consecration as if they're concelebrating because they don't have that role. Right. They're not there to, you know, to passively be there. They're certainly not there to consecrate. They can't. Uh, and so reminders regarding these distinctions of roles. And so in the 90s, these nine congregations published this document on the relationship of the non-ordained minister with the ordained minister. Hmm. And one of those things was basically what you said, you know, stay in your lane. Uh, there are ways in which confusion can come about in the in the mass as to who is a liturgical minister doing what. And so there's the different gestures being uh, being used by the different ministers. So the Oron's position would be an example of that. Or if you mingle, say, uh, the use of uh, blessing oils, as in some charismatic services, so that it you have lay people uh, distributing and blessing with oils in the context of a liturgy. This was one that was specifically said, no, you can't do that because in the liturgy, what you think you're looking to the sacramental ministers. And so in the liturgy, you can have connected with the mass. You could have a, um, uh, the, the anointing of the sick, for example, mm-hmm. but that would be done by a priest. It's not done by a deacon. It's not done by a lay person. Okay. So anything which seeks to con- uh, confuse the roles. And one of those would be uh, having lay people who don't have the faculty to bless doing blessings. And that would be uh, a theological reason as well as a uh, a canonical one. And of course, the common sense reason is, is while a parent can bless its child because they have authority over them, Mm -hmm. there is no, what is the authority there? The extraordinary minister of communion is performing a service ministry. They're not exercising authority the way the pastor of a parish does uh, over his flock. Okay. So that would be that would be another example where common sense should tell you that uh, no, that that shouldn't happen. Al in Minnesota, thanks so much uh, for your question. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. Kicking us off here is Ron, a first time caller from Houston, listening on the Great Guadalupe Radio. Hello, Ron. What's on your mind today? My father, I had a question about if it's possible to pray over someone in wanting Christ to reveal himself to them 
when they come up for communion as a Eucharistic minister? No, again, the one task an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion has is to distribute communion. So let's say they took it upon themselves to uh, place their hand on the head of somebody and pray over them. Uh, a five or 10 minute communion would take 15 or 20 minutes, you know, as they decide whom they ought to bless and whom they ought to pray over, mm, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same confusion of roles and a confusion of what I am about personally in this responsibility, which the, the bishop through the pastor has graciously uh, allowed me to do for the good of this parish. Do that role. Don't do other roles. Uh, so that's the, the logic is quite simple. Okay. And uh, Ron, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. We have one line open, 833-288-3986. Interesting question here from Daniel. He says, I understand an annulment is a declaration that a marriage was never valid in the first place. This seems similar to a Protestant understanding of justification that says if one sins, then he was never a real Christian. So is the Catholic understanding of annulment an argument against the Catholic understanding of justification? Uh, no, they're two different categories. They're not even related in that respect. An annulment is a, or a decree of nullity, which is what the church officially calls it, mm -hmm. is a judgment that from the side of the two parties, the, the male and the female, the husband and the wife, or putative husband and wife, yeah. there was a defect in their consent. So that defect is the obstacle to it being a marriage. The church did not minister the marriage to them. This is a mistaken idea of, of, uh, of that this people might have of marriage. Mm. The couple minister the sacrament to each other. The priest witnesses the sacrament, and you'll hear that language. So there are the, the priest uh, will sign the document witnessing it, and there's usually a, an other witnesses will sign as well. Mm -hmm. So the couple are, are ministering the sacrament to each other because it's, the, you know, the, the man gives himself totally to the wife, the wife gives herself totally uh, to, to the man, and in this way they minister this total gift of self, which is marriage. So what defects could come into that? Well, it might be that the person is not capable of that gift. And I think today the psychological arguments in many cases are, are quite convincing. I think that the immaturity of people today very often will, you know, sort of argue that, well, you know, their idea of marriage is so you know, a availability for sex or something like that, and is not at all a mature idea of what marriage is about. Yeah. And on the basis of that, the church would judge that they didn't have the psychological capacity to marry, or because they harbored some defect of their intention. Hmm. So there are two intentions that must be held in making marriage. This person for life, indissolubility, that's the unitive dimension. And this person for life in the sense of openness to human life because reproduction is the natural purpose of marriage to which sexual relations are ordered in the natural order. Mm -hmm. And so if a person marries or 
maybe only one of them harbors this and they you know in their mind and in their will you know you know i'm marrying betty uh but you know if we get bored with each other i'm going to go off and find somebody else they didn't marry they harbored this they harbored this will against the unity of marriage mm. or yeah, we're going to get married, but, you know, let's not give up our lifestyle. We don't need to have children. You know, we're 30 years old. We've got about 10, 15, you know, good years to go out and play. You know, let's let's not have any children. There's an obstacle to marriage. It's not really a marriage. So the church, in looking at the annulment, uh, looking to see whether a marriage was formed, is gathers evidence regarding the psychological ability of the person to form a lifelong commitment like that, as well as their willed judgment and decision to actually do it on those points, on the unitive point in the procreative one. Mm. And if there's a defect there, then the church says, writes a decree of nullity, which says no marriage existed on the day in which they stood before the church and swore to it, swore to marry. That's what the decree of nullity is is suggesting and proposing. So, no, the church is not annulling something uh, as uh, sin would annul the grace of justification until it's revived through repentance and the sacrament, but rather that the couple themselves did not will the marriage and have now, you know, coming forward to the church and saying, this hasn't worked out and we know why. Uh, we really didn't will will the, or at least I didn't will if the husband or maybe the wife, I didn't, you know, I didn't want children or the husband that, well, you know, I wanted to be free if I decided to go find somebody else. Those kinds of things are the defects which lead to annulments. Yes, indeed. It is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Earlier in the program, we were talking about uh, Pope Benedict XVI of Holy Memory, Mm -hmm. And uh, EWTN's Religious Catalog is offering something very timely for you. It is a Pope Benedict XVI commemorative laminated holy card. You can celebrate the life of Joseph Ratzinger, uh, obviously Pope Benedict XVI, with this commemorative holy card. On the front of the card, it's a color image of Pope Benedict along with his papal coat of arms. On the back, you'll see the dates of his birth, uh, his death, ordination, and uh, his whole pontificate. They're all listed there along with a beautiful prayer, and I'm going to take just a moment to read that prayer because it it, it really touched me deeply. Mm -hmm. Here's the prayer. Lord, source of eternal life and truth, who in your wondrous providence chose your servant Pope Benedict XVI to preside over the church, we give you most hearty thanks for the years of his faithful service. And we pray that after having served as the victor of your son on earth, he may be received by your Son into eternal glory. Eternal rest granted to him, O Lord. Let perpetual light shine upon him. May he rest in peace. Amen. Now, this beautiful laminated card, it's about three inches by four inches. And if you want to order a whole bunch of them, uh, discounts are available for bulk orders. You can visit EWTNRC.com for all the details. And again, all you have to do is uh, go to the search box there, put in uh, Pope Benedict Holy Card, and I'm sure it'll come up. Again, the address, EWTNRC.com. Did you have any uh, 
any uh, input into that prayer there, Colin, or was that uh, came came from somebody else? <laughs> yeah, it must have come from somebody else. It didn't come from me. Perhaps uh, Father Joseph. Uh, I, I know Father Joseph. Most likely. Had, he had a real devotion to uh, Pope Benedict, I thought. Yes, yes, he did. And I think uh, like a lot of priests of his generation, you know, formed during uh, sure. during that period. Absolutely. In a moment here, we're going to be talking with Carly in Houston. Don't go away, Carly. We'll come to you right after the break. We'll also talk with Marie in Maine, Rosemarie in St. Louis, Caleb, a first-time caller from Indiana, another first-timer, Tom in Seattle, and uh, we're looking forward to a lot of great calls coming up in the next half hour here on Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan on EWTN. Stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, glad you're with us for Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. As promised, here is Carly. Carly is in Houston listening on the EWTN app. Hello, Carly. What's on your mind today? Hi there. I have a family member who uh, Mm -hmm. actually works for a diocese, and the statement that has been made uh, from this family member is that a, a just God a loving God, just God, would not punish someone eternally for a temporal offense, and therefore you will get out of hell eventually if you're in hell, and hell cannot be eternal because of God's justice. What would I say to this? Yeah, it's precisely because of his justice. If we conceive of sin as only, you know, what I do to you, you know, I injure your good name, I hurt you, maybe I kill you, or I rob from you, or do something, then yes, there's a temporal element uh, to that. And all the, all the re- all that needs to be done for reconciliation would be for me to convince you to forgive me. And we're reconciled. But what about God? It wasn't because of the human element, the justice element, which takes part of Catholic theology when you consider, you know, things like the temporal punishment due to sin, the suffering that we spread around and uh, endure ourselves because of our weaknesses and sins and and, and, and cause, uh, you know, the ripple effect in, in society and culture. Uh, if it were only that, then Jesus wouldn't had to have come down to earth. But in sin, where a person with a conscience formed enough knows that they ought not to kill, they ought not to steal, they ought not to commit adultery. You go through the Ten Commandments. They ought not to have other gods before God. Now we're talking about an offense against God, an offense against infinite goodness. Now the punishment for that is an infinite justice that separates one from God eternally. And so those who die in the state of estrangement from God, unrepentant of their offenses, they've made a choice. God did not choose for them. He gave them free will. They chose, I'm going to ignore that you exist, God. I'm going to ignore that not just Ten Commandments, but even common sense and natural justice tells me the things that I did in life were gravely wrong. I'm going to ignore all of that, and I'm going to die unrepentant. There is the infinite fault. There is the just injustice against God. Now, Christ is the remedy there. 
this is why his, in his uh, assuming human nature, dying on the cross for us, he pays that penalty, but you have to embrace it. He doesn't, you know, as he used the expression, don't not to throw your pearls before swine. He doesn't throw away that forgiveness, but all you need to do is turn to him and say, Lord, have mercy on me, and you get it freely. So the case of the individual who does not do that is that they are eternally punished. Christ says that in it's recorded in the Gospels, all of them. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, the, the, how at the end of the world the weeds will be gathered up and burned with fire at the close of the age and the thrown into the fire where there will be weeping and gnashing. Mark does the same thing. Luke mentions the same thing. Uh, in, uh, in, the, uh, in the book of, uh, book of Jude, we're told about how Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which acted immorally, indulged in unnatural lust, serve in his example by, will undergo an eternal fire. So therefore a very specific sin that he's referring to. And then in the very final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where we're told about the consummation of human history, we're told that then death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Elsewhere, Christ himself had said that hell was created for his, the devil and his angels. And so every reference that he makes there as a destiny for human beings is to share in the punishment that the angels themselves now share in because of their own disobedience to God. And so it's for that insult, not for temporal fault or, or, or human frailty, all of which is forgivable, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, hell is eternal. So not only does Scripture attest to it throughout, but also the, in the Church's history, there has never been a case where the magisterium has taught that the hell is anything other than uh, eternal punishment for sins, unrepentant, grave sin. So somebody, you know, is selling others, you know, a get out of jail free card <laughs> if they are telling them that. Yeah. And so, they shouldn't be doing it. So Carly, we have to face the consequences of our sinfulness. Exactly. And Carly, you may want to uh, refer the podcast of this program to your cousin. And uh, we'll have that posted for you in a couple of hours here at EWTNradio.net ewtnradio.net, and then click on the word podcasts, and uh, just scroll down to where you see uh, Open Line Friday. There you go. Thank you so much for your call. Yaroslav is listening to us in Ukraine today uh, via YouTube. Yaroslav says, what is the difference between receiving Holy Eucharist, genuflecting or kneeling, and standing? Yeah, um, the church gives us a certain liberty. There is, uh, in the instructions for most, uh, general instructions for most countries, mm -hmm. there is a way that is described as how, how communion uh, will be received normally in that country. So I don't know what it is in the Ukraine, but in the United States, and I think in many countries, it's to come forward in procession and you receive from the from the minister of Holy Communion, whether it's the priest or deacon or extraordinary minister, uh -huh. uh, at the head of the processional line. So th that that's how it's to be received. Now, some people feel that, well, they such a solemn moment, they want to receive uh, kneeling down, 
or many of us do because Mother Angelica promoted this as a practice to genuflect and, and then get up so that yeah. it's not uh, an obstacle to others uh, in the line. Sure. Uh, others will just simply kneel down before the priest, and that's fine. And the question was asked of Rome whether that was legitimate. And basically, yes. However, the individual wishes to receive, that is their choice if they uh, obviously coming up in procession as it mostly is people. Mm-hmm. But if they kneel down, they may do that. Or if they genuflect, they may do that. Or what is prescribed in the general instruction, and that is to bow, and then you come forward and to receive. So okay. any of those gestures as a sign of, you know, re- what you're re- the dignity of that which you're receiving, our Lord himself. And then you can bring your own personal piety to it if you wish to kneel or to genuflect. Okay. Uh, and so on. And that is that is an option which Rome uh, right. Rome has said is permitted. Very good. And Yaroslav, thanks so much uh, for checking in from Ukraine. Uh, and on a personal note, please note that we're praying for you. Thanks so much. We are uh, for, yeah, absolutely. Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. We actually have a related question from Marie in Maine, <laughs> listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Marie, what's on your mind today? Oh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I live in yes, I live in Maine, and one of our mm-hmm. we have clusters. So a, par- a pastor of one of the clusters has placed a kneeler in each of his churches. And what I've noticed is uh, so to receive communion. What I've noticed is that more people are going to the priest and the kneeler than they are now to the extraordinary minister. And I was wondering if you've seen this or if you have any experience with mm-hmm. this. And also, I was thinking, I'd love to challenge other pastors to try this and see what the outcome is in their church. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah, and uh, in some places they do that. you know, some some have restored uh, the the communion rail and, and used that. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite an efficient way of distributing Holy Communion. Uh, if you see our, our friars up at the shrine doing that, you know, it's 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 certainly no slower, I don't think, than the normal procession. Mm-hmm. Uh, some places they have the kneelers. That seems a little bit slower because one person has to get up uh, in order for another person to come forward. So. I think that that's going to be a choice that the pastor can make if there's clearly, you know, if it clearly becomes a problem uh, in terms of uh, delaying communion, then clearly he has the option of putting out more kneelers, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so in a way, you're, you're you're voting by getting in that particular line that you want, want to sure, kneel. Sure, sure. Uh, and so that would be a way of showing uh, interest in, in being able to kneel. Marie, thanks so much uh, for your call. Uh, my wife and I are members of a, a small inner city parish here in Birmingham, and uh, the previous pastor put in a kneeler, and now the current pastor has continued that. And I would say it's probably about half and half. Some people will mm-hmm. kneel and, you know, take advantage of that. Others just want to stand, and, and that's perfectly fine. Yeah, and it gives people the option, especially if you're getting older and arthritic, as some of us are. <laughs> you know, that that can be a challenge to get down to a kneeler and get back up again. Sure, sure. Open line uh, Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Let's go now to Rosemary in St. Louis, listening on the Great Covenant Radio. Hey, Rosemary, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon. Thank you. Um, I'm asking um, Mr. Donovan... Um, I am reading a couple of books, 
about infiltration of communism in the Catholic Church back starting even in the 19th century uh, up until now, um, uh, regarding Abella Dodd, who was a known communist, and she, Mm -hmm. um, do you know of her? Yes, uh, I'm familiar with the story, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, is, I'm just really flabbergasted by everything that this book is saying, and I'm wondering how much of it is, um, I don't know what to call it. Is it is it true or is it? Um, yeah. Is it... Uh, well, I can only tell you that uh, that that this that she testified uh, before Congress on this point. Now, keep in mind that this is when she was active in the Communist Party in the United States. Mm-hmm. I think and that she uh, enabled uh, some people to get into, uh, helps people and encouraged people to get into seminaries to undermine the church from within. Uh, all of those particular people will be long dead, as is Bella Dodd. So I think, uh, you know, we have an even greater problem with that, is there is this absolutely huge organization which is completely unseen which has been infiltrating people into the church for 2,000 years. Now, that's a scary thought, especially since they're demons and they're much smarter than we are and they're much more powerful. So I think you have to take those kinds of claims and the significance of them as, sure, this may have happened a hundred years ago. There are probably people in the in the priesthood today who ought not to be there, uh, whether by virtue of their own consciences and their own morality and their own view of what the church is about and maybe their own self-interest and, you know, careerism and so on. This is the nature, this is the nature of the church as it is of any institution. So I would not put a lot of stock in those kinds of things. Once we start to make a central point in our argumentation that these kinds of conspiracies, which they are, there are such things. The devil is the greatest conspirator of all time. And he doesn't have one conspiracy. He's probably got 50 to 100 of them going at any one one time, if not more. Here's the main thing that our faith has to home in on. Just as the church did not depend upon Peter, but upon Christ, Mm -hmm. it doesn't depend upon any of the successors of Peter, other than in the institutional way that the church claims of apostolic succession of authority and teaching and sacraments and so on. It doesn't depend upon any one bishop or any one clergyman, or any one theologian, lay or clerical. It depends upon Christ and Christ alone. And when we begin to forget that, we get all wound up with the conspiracy theories, which have germs of truth and may even have been true in the time that Bella Dodd testified to the, in this respect. Uh, I know a, a great friend of mine, uh, uh, Alice von Hildebrand was oh, yes. quite familiar with this story as well and uh, could, could attest to having known Bella for many years. But the point remains the same. 
Christ is the one upon whom the church depends. The rest of us are instruments and cogs in it, whether they're popes or bishops or clerics or whatever. Mm -hmm. And when we lose our focus on Christ, we get caught up in the human story. Now, we do all the things that we must do. We speak the truth. We behave morally. We do all the things which Christ is asking us to do in the church. But ultimately, the foundation is Christ and, and he alone. So we can't let those things shake that faith. You know, Colin, I just love the phrase, keep your eyes on the prize. That's certainly true. And he is the prize because he will fill us in every respect. Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Tomorrow evening, be sure to check out Beyond Damascus. That'll be at 8 p.m. Eastern here on EWTN Radio. This week, Pete Barak discusses living like apostles and not losing our call, which is uh, all too often very easy to do. So uh, do check it out. It's a great program. Beyond Damascus, tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Caleb, a first-time caller from Indiana, listening on Redeemer Radio. Hey, Caleb, what's on your mind today? Uh, hello. I, uh, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a Catholic. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I've always wondered why Catholics uh, baptize infants, because in my understanding, the whole point of baptism is you choosing to come, or to show people that you're coming to Christ. Okay. Well, I would dispute you on that point, that that's, there's nowhere in Scripture does that, uh, is that claim ever made. So on the first, on the day of Pentecost, Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. There's a purpose. By your choice to repent and by your baptism, you are, sins are forgiven. That's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through baptism. Philip, uh, Philip meeting, uh, appearing with the Ethiopian eunuch on the, as he returned to Ethiopia and after he evangelized him, he says, well, what's to keep me from being baptized? He saw that baptism is the gateway to Christ because it's the baptism into his death. This is the power and the source of baptism, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So that's the purpose of baptism. Now, let's go back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is based upon a relationship of blood that existed among the Israelites. And in this relationship of blood by which one was born into Israel, there were certain sacraments, in quotes, uh, even Thomas Aquinas talks about the sacraments of the old law. There were certain signs and things that were done by the Israelites to welcome the child into the family, to indicate their heritage. Uh, In the case of the male, you had the circumcision and all of these kinds of things. Because it was a body of individuals connected by blood and by the promise of the Messiah. With the church, we have the promise of the Messiah fulfilled, and we have the power of the redemption which Christ won for us, made into these instruments, these means, one of which is baptism. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So that's the purpose. Yes, that is a witness, but that's a secondary thing. The thing is what it does to the individual, that Christ, we're baptized into Christ. 
that grace now fills our soul, that we are reconciled with the Father in that moment, that we are given the grace and the strength to maintain that relationship with the Father if we are faithful and and do what we are asked to do in maintaining uh, uh, that Christian relationship. And so that's the purpose of baptism. So in the church, we have a different outward sign, a different means of indicating belonging to the people of God, because the people of God now is a spiritual relationship that begins with baptism. So what are we we told? We're told in the Acts of the Apostles that when Paul, uh, when they managed to get out of the prison after they had been locked up and the angel helped them get out, what happened is the guards you know, thought, feared for their life. Yeah. But what happened was Paul went and preached to them and their entire households were baptized. Now, in households, you can presume that there were children. And in fact, we know from the history of the church that the church at no time ever did not baptize children. So infant baptism goes back to the early church. Now, granted, the Acts does not say, and among those were children, it just says whole households. That's because the corporate memory of those days is not the Bible, it's the church. The Bible as a form document did not really uh, exist in any complete way until the 300s. And so the church witnessing to itself always baptized, as Paul did in baptizing all the members of the households in, in those cases in Acts where it is said that he did that. So that's the difference. We are a redeemed people united by a bond of baptism by which we are baptized into the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the sign. That's where the grace comes from. That's where repentance is actualized by grace. Uh, That's what happened when John baptized Christ and the Spirit descended to let us know that it wasn't the baptism of Judaism, the baptism of repentance that converts went through, but rather it was a baptism of water and the Holy Spirit. And so that's the purpose of baptism, to give us the Holy Spirit, and it continues to do that 2,000 years uh, after those days. Great question, Caleb. Thanks so much for your call. Let's go now to Tom, a first-time caller from Seattle, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hello, Tom. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Um, I've had uh, questions uh, in reference to the uh, Catholic Charismatic Renewal, mm-hmm. um, and that was I was involved with that back in the uh, uh, 70s, and mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm kind of looking for legitimacy. I know that there was a uh, meeting in Rome um, during that time, uh, 75, I think. Um, the questions I have, one is, uh, legitimacy of tongues. Um, a a bigger one probably is, um, like word of the Lord or prophecy, um, Mm -hmm. being under, uh, being under authority. And so I'm now out in Seattle and Mm -hmm. I'm not part of a community, but, um, for where do I place myself under authority um, for, um, you know, word of the Lord or, or prophecy or something mm-hmm. to that effect. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, 
that's a very Protestant kind of language and approach to it. And I'm not sure why uh, those kinds of terms. We we have a we have a clear lines of authority in the church. Uh, we have the pope. We have the bishops. We have the pastors. Uh, most dioceses will have uh, somebody who uh, a priest who is either formally a vicar for the charismatic renewal or has some, you know, oversight responsibilities. That's where authority uh, over the charismatic renewal in the Catholic Church comes from. Okay. Uh, and so um, there's, I, I can't think of in any particular book, but if you just, if you went to our EWTN.com website or to Vatican.va, the Vatican's website, and you were to search or even using Google or one of the search engines on the charismatic renewal in the Catholic Church, uh, you no doubt would find, for example, addresses of the popes to the annual meetings of the charismatic renewal in Rome uh, and things of that nature, which will give you exactly where the church uh, uh, understands that. Now, one theological principle that will be important to you is that in charismatic gifts, are not necessary for salvation. Charismatic gifts are given for building up the church, as St. Paul tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians in, in chapter 12. They're given for that purpose. Charismatic gifts have to be discerned, so people can may have words of knowledge or people can uh, give prophetic things. The truth will be that it comes true. The truth will be manifest in the way in which uh, it is demonstrated to have been the case. In the case of healings and things like that, there are always the possibility that the church could investigate a particular uh, claim of charismatic healing, but I don't think that happens very often. Uh, but the point is, there is a discernment, mm -hmm. and it's the church that discerns. The renewal doesn't necessarily discern itself, uh, although though there will be certainly priests within the renewal who who do that fairly routinely as part of giving spiritual guidance and direction to people. So you're always looking for those who already possess authority in the church to confirm those things which are not necessary for the church, but which are gracious gifts of God. And so always look to the church and her own authorities yes. uh, to, uh, to, to affirm those things. Tom, thanks so much for your call. Colin Donovan, uh, a great show, and thank you so much for all that you do, and have a wonderful weekend, sir. Thank you, Tom, and you as well. Thank you. Don't forget, uh, special coverage next week is going to be on the March for Life. Also, That's from Washington, D.C., also the Walk for Life West Coast and One Life L.A. It all starts Friday at 8 a.m. Eastern right here on EWTN Radio. Until next time, I'm Tom Price along with, Dr., or, uh, along with Colin Donovan. We'll see you next time. Have a great weekend.